0: TikTok. You've probably heard about it by now, because in the last couple of years, it's everywhere. It's already surpassed a billion users and has become a favorite among Gen Z and other fun-loving netizens. Then this happened. We're looking at TikTok. We may be banning TikTok. We may be doing some other things or a couple of options, but a lot of things are happening. So we'll see what happens. but. We are looking at a lot of alternatives with respect to TikTok. So why does the U.S. president feel the need to wade into a social media platform? Now he's even insisting it has to be sold to Microsoft if it's not going to be banned in the United States. So I invited An Xiao Mina to talk about her recent article, Bread and TikTok for the Masses, to see what she thinks about this curious case i'm Hrag Vartanian, the editor-in-chief and co-founder of hyperallergic we'll also discuss the death of greek poet dinos christianopoulos whose line they tried to bury us they didn't know we were seeds has become a staple of protests the world over he died last week how we get this far, get this Thanks, far. on for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Rob, for having me. So I want to talk a little bit about the TikTok article you wrote for Hyperallergic that yeah. we recently published. And, you know, I think right now TikTok has been on everyone's mind, not only is it because it's become such a runaway success in terms of social media and taken up so much, so much of the conversation, particularly among new creators that are sort of using the internet to get their messages out. But the bigger question, and one of the reasons that I appreciated your article, was trying to figure out why do governments feel threatened by TikTok?
1: Right, right. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And it's, I think it, it ties into a number of different intersecting factors here. Um, like when you consider the fact that so many of our platforms have come, you know, we often think of the internet as a placeless space, but but it's very it's very situated in place. And most of our major platforms have come from Silicon Valley. So folks are used to that idea. Folks are used to Silicon Valley kind of governing and, and determining how our platforms and internet and popular internet works. And then here comes long TikTok, Um, that is the first major platform from China to have a global reach. Um, And so in that regard, it's kind of reminding us uh, that um, our platforms, our internets are very much situated in a geographic space, a political space. And it's then, then raised questions amongst so many groups about the origins of the platform, its motivations, and its relationships to the Chinese government.
0: So, I mean, part of me was definitely saying, "Oh, great! Finally, something outside of the Silicon Valley, you know, mm-hmm. uh, system." But I mean, are these security concerns that people in power, particularly in the U.S., I mean, are they legitimate?
1: It's a, it's a difficult question because, um, on the one hand, the uh, the security concerns are are real, and uh, you know, in the article, I talked about words from David Kaye, out, his outgoing uh, UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression. And he's been no, not been shy about critiquing the privacy security implications for the Silicon Valley platforms and their implications for people, for activists, for others. And yet he's been very clear that it TikTok, what he says, he says, TikTok introduces the problem of government surveillance and data sharing, and he does not know how much access the Chinese government enjoys. So on the one hand, yes, uh, we, we should be concerned about this. On the other hand, being concerned about this does not mean that we shouldn't also be concerned about platforms and their, their access to data, the access that governments have, you know, the the, um, the, the NSA surveillance programs. All of these things are not limited to, to what's going on with TikTok, but seem instead to be a larger problem that we have um, with many private platforms on the internet.
0: So how do you think Silicon Valley has gotten away without these exact same concerns being so escalated, right? I mean, it's not like Facebook and Instagram weren't involved in, you know, influencing different campaigns in 2016. It's not like Twitter clearly has a history of bots and other kind of manipulations. But why are we so focused on TikTok right now?
1: Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. I think one is, um, is that the major platforms are not always getting away with it now. You're seeing major changes amongst platform policies, and you're seeing platform is being called to to account in Congress. And you're seeing a lot of activism really being focused on content uh, moderation policies, how platforms work, et cetera, and their influence on, on elections, on democracy, on governments and um, in general. So I think one thing to think about in context is that there is this larger accounting um, with, with technology platforms. It's not enough, of course. It's a, there's always more to be done. But it's a big change since 2016 when we, when we still had this rhetoric that platforms were neutral, that platforms were a neutral space for speech. And now I think there's, there's at least at least in certain popular discourse that platforms have a responsibility and accountability, not just to their bottom line, but to civic discourse. And so TikTok in particular, though, also enters in this context of a rising awareness of and concern about China's uh, increasing economic and political impact in the world. Certainly the context of the pandemic and its origins in Wuhan are part of the story, but also just a growing xenophobia, um, a growing kind of fear-mongering amongst uh, the current administration as well. It's complex, right? It's uh, There are legitimate concerns, but at the same time, there are overinflated and um, and often very uh, one-sided concerns that don't, don't take you to count the entire picture of how how platforms have largely disregarded uh, users rights across the world
0: yeah it i mean i agree with you in and so much of what you're saying but at the same time i still feel like silicon valley is getting away with it you know, mm-hmm. it still feels that way, yeah. at least from the outside. And I mean, I think in terms of repercussions, mm-hmm. it's it's been really interesting that there doesn't seem to be any repercussions for these, because a lot of the activist groups tend to be, I mean, even if you have a million people involved in a protest on Facebook, the reality is, they're looking at billions of people. Yeah, right. Yeah. So yeah. it it feels it feels like going up against something that is bigger than literally any government in the world, or at least in in terms of quantity. So how effective have these? pushes actually been like, and a grassroots level. I know a few years ago, there was a lot of discussion around Facebook's role in the ethnic cleansing of the Rohingya in Southeast Asia and how that was being influenced. And then recently, a number of publications and nonprofits that were working with Facebook on fact-checking, you know, came out and said literally, they're not interested. They actually didn't like us mentioning the Rohingya case or anything like this. So really, What do you think? Are we seeing real progress or is this all smoke and mirrors?
1: Yeah, so, I, you know, we're at an organization, Medan, where, you know, we, we actually build software for fact-checkers using WhatsApp. We work with a number of different organizations like India Today. We work with, you know, Boom and AFP in India, and we have a number of new Indian partners. And so it's very true that platforms are taking this seriously, that they are supporting efforts to do fact-checking. On the other hand, uh, there have been a lot of, you know, really, really strong and, and reasonable critiques. And so in terms of accountability, um, absolutely, there's more can be done. But in terms of movement, you know, certainly there has been movement since, you know, certainly at least since 2016. Has it been enough? Um, I think that's an open question. And we're starting to see, but I think what's interesting to see is how you know, you're getting news from Facebook, you're getting news from Twitter about how they're taking seriously, not just fact checking, but harassment on the platforms, misinformation, conspiracy theories, and, and they're enacting real content moderation policies. And not just enacting, but enforcing these policies. And um, and you see you have these kind of very splashy things um, where obviously, you know, they, they take down a video that Trump might have retweeted. But then at the same time, they, um, you know, there, there's still a lot of evidence that, um, that a lot of the stuff that they purport to, to be moderating or taking down or at least controlling in some way is, um, is actually still spreading and still causing harm. And so there's, there's still much more work to be done and, and I think much more investment really needs to happen uh, to make this possible.
0: So what would it look like on WhatsApp? Because, I mean, as someone who uses WhatsApp, you know, most of them are private conversations. Mm-hmm. So how would a fact-checking happen on a service like yeah. that?
1: Yeah, so it's, it's a tough question because, um, because on the one hand, you have really hard-fought rights around privacy and security on WhatsApp. A lot of the security protocols that are on WhatsApp were developed through the Internet Freedom Community who were really concerned about the implications of, of government surveillance on WhatsApp. And then on the flip side, what we're learning is that that through private messaging apps, it's actually been very effective for for governments and disinformation agents to spread confusing messages to spread harmful messages. And as we've been seeing in throughout South Asia and Myanmar, you know, just inciting, you know, hatred and violence. And so so it's it's this double edged sword that's um, more that we need to research and try to understand. I think one way that fact checking happens on these platforms on WhatsApp is through what's called tip lines, where folks can you know, submit content um, that they see. They submit that to the the tip lines, um, and and then that, that actually gets sent. To a fact-checking organization, that organization fact-checks and then responds back, and so that's one way of kind of balancing this this need between end-to-end encryption on the one hand, but also trying to help support a, a healthy and vibrant information ecosystem. And uh, there are a number of other you know techniques that could be used, but I think that the main thing is really understanding that WhatsApp is not does not operate in a vacuum. It's part of a larger information environment, and so anything you know that that's spreading on WhatsApp is very much reflective of the larger um, the larger context. And so, you know, the scholar Whitney Phillips and Ryan Milner, they, they talk about this, that we need to start thinking about the internet as an ecosystem, right? And and so uh, you change one thing in the ecosystem, it starts to change other things. But if the ecosystem itself is polluted, um, we can't expect any one place to be much better because it's uh, the whole thing is, is really mucky right now.
0: I agree wholeheartedly about the ecosystem. I've always wondered, you know, if if also we should be thinking of even like image rights and other things on the internet in, ter- in terms of even environmental, you know, yeah. whether things are dumped on the internet or actually made available for recycling. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I I love that idea it's because nice, I think yeah. we should think more and more about online spaces in the same way we we think of uh, you know, offline spaces. And how some people are literally just dumping online. That's
1: um, absolutely right, and it's a good analogy for what's going on right now, right? Like, I think you know, you, so take away the internet thing, and and um, there's a lot of discussion about the role that India and China are playing in in climate change, right? And and, and you know, as more people are driving, more people are dumping waste, etc. Um, we're starting to see um, impacts on the environment, but these critiques completely <laughs> miss out the fact that the industrial revolution. And pretty much entire entire industrialized world really came out of the West, right? And so these systems, all of these things are interconnected. And so you can't you can't look at one thing and say, hey, that's that's a terrible practice, without also saying, wait a minute, why is that um, a motivating practice for them? Well, it's because the larger system is encouraging these these sorts of practices. So so I think the same same similar could be said for TikTok and the privacy concerns that are being raised.
0: So in your article, you make the comparison with bread and circuses from ancient Rome. Mm-hmm. Do you want to explain a little bit about what you mean by that?
1: Sure, yeah. You know, one, one thing that I've appreciated about TikTok in the midst of this pandemic, and I think a number of hyperallergic writers have written about this, is just it's just giving us some joy, right? It's, it's a funny place. It's a place to go and just laugh. And, and, and um, it's a social palliative, right? When this time when we cannot connect with people in the same way, um, we don't have the same kind of street culture, uh, the things that used to entertain us have now moved online. And TikTok is such a wonderful place for that. Um, there's so much, so many funny things going on. But then at the same time, you know, the, the entertainment has always been a source of power for those in power. It's, it's always, you know, well, on the one hand, you know, for, of course, humor is a way to, to deconstruct and take down power. But, um, but using entertainment has been a, a mechanism for empire and control. And so um, the Roman satirist juvenile, he uses uses phrase, bread and circuses. And he was you know, saying that they're bread and circuses for the masses, which was a practice amongst um, Roman emperors to offer food and entertainment to distract the public. And, um, you know, if you, if you satisfy their basic needs and you entertain them, um, they're probably less likely to, um, uh, to rise up. But the challenge here, of course, is that, that those bread and circuses have to come from those in power the entertainment must come from people who um, are controlling the narrative and so TikTok makes it actually a really complicated space um, as a result because On the one hand, yes, it's providing us with the circuses that we need, Um, but as we saw, for instance, with the, uh, you know, the the kind of famous story of the TikTok teams, you know, pranking the the Trump rally, that if you don't control the circuses, um, they could turn against you very quickly. So I think understanding the origins of entertainment and power is an important part of understanding why TikTok has been such a target for governments recently.
0: So That story, of course, for many people who may not know, was that uh, Trump's Tulsa rally. The word was that a lot of BTS-affiliated, which is a K-pop band, using TikTok and other mediums were were reserving tickets for an event and then never showing up. And hence, we got a stadium that looked pretty much empty. Now, do we know if that's actually true on, like, because I could never quite get a sense of, like, was that true? Is that, did it really have such a big impact? Did it stop other people from going?
1: Right. Yeah, I personally did not did not dig into it in um, you know looked into the, the research per se. But I think the important part here, the important part is whether it's that it almost certainly had some effect. I think that's uh, you know folks folks did look into that and and saw that there was some effect. But the important part here is that it was attributed to TikTok teens, right? It was this idea that TikTok teams were, were able to prank a Trump rally, were able to to prank other kind of other hashtags. Right. Whether it was organized on Twitter, on Facebook, the story that emerged was that it was happening on TikTok. So that that part of the narrative um, was certainly amplified you know, in, in the wake of that and can't be disconnected from the fact that we're now that now the, the federal government is considering uh, trying to block TikTok from being owned, um, you know, owned and operated by, by a Chinese company while operating in the United States.
0: I mean, it really sounds like a shakedown to me, but um, (laughs) I guess other people will will, will opine about that too. So now, what does government control on these mediums look like, you know, in terms of TikTok, you know, or government influence? Because you were talking about elites sort of influencing conversations on social Mm -hmm. media. I mean, we certainly see on Twitter, you know, President Trump and other politicians, they certainly do get a lot of traffic there on instagram yeah. less so though mm-hmm. i think there it's a little more indirect and somehow a little more insidious as a result do yep. you know in many ways but on TikTok, what does that look like i mean does that involve celebrities because mm. I, i've always wondered about the role of celebrities on these on these platforms like mm-hmm. will smith has a popular TikTok channel right? right as an example you know what is he really communicating like is is he like part of this sort of bigger cuz you know entertainment is part of it right it's mm-hmm. not it's not separate of it but part of its power comes from the fact that people don't recognize that it's part of a certain kind of elite yeah. that um, and a certain power structure so yeah, i'd love yeah. your thoughts on that
1: yeah so so the, the issue of government are we talking about government influence? Um, government or, influence? or, I
0: mean, I think people in power because I people think empower. this is okay. where there's blurring. I mean, at this yeah. point, we have corporations that are bigger than governments, right? right like right. Apple Apple, and TikTok are probably bigger than, the, you know, at least in terms of soft power, than, yes. let's say, the government of Luxembourg or right, right. probably even, you know, other Portugal. Who knows? Right, I mean, right, right. a lot of countries that are certainly not, you know, uh, insignificant. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. So in that regard, the reason I'm asking is so I think, um, so I wrote an article in Foreign Policy with Sean McDonald about basically the modes of influence that governments are having on um, on platforms in a lot of different ways. But I think you you bring up a very important point, which is that influence happens through celebrities as well, through corporations and others. And so one thing that, um, and this is broader than TikTok, of course, is that is that influencer culture is both a, a cool way for people to promote um, you know, their work and get visibility, but the fact that brands jump on that, right? and the fact that, um, that celebrities might push uh, political content or, or might help shape uh, political views um, is, is also part of this story. And so when we look at the decentralization of influence, of media influence, it actually becomes uh, very tricky to understand, OK, um, you, we have to understand that like, influence might operate in networks. And uh, might um, operate through through major nodes, and that narratives are built now most likely um, and most often through influencers and celebrities, um, perhaps more so than than through mainstream media. And so understanding that ecosystem is really crucial to understanding why and how people come to believe things and why they, they come to, you know, come to practice online um, or share things online. So absolutely, that's, that's part of this story. Um, and it's part of what, what draws people to a platform like TikTok because there are a lot of eyeballs. There's a lot of, there's a lot of potential revenue to be made. So these things can't be kind can't be disaggregated. And in fact, when you look at the influence operations that, that folks have studied um, in, you know, there's been a lot of focus on, on how Russia has, you know, Russian government has sponsored efforts to, to influence, um, you know, Americans views on, on politics on the elections. A lot of that is actually just through influencer culture. And so again, it goes back to ecosystems, we've enabled a kind of online culture that, that is driven by influencers and through memes and images. And so we shouldn't be surprised to see that, that people are trying to influence political views um, through those same mechanisms.
0: So what does that actually look like? Does the Russian government actually pay influencers to do different things? Is that really what it looks like?
1: So some of the research here is, is that it's it's more like targeting influencers, right? Trying to target influencers to amplify messages and then to, to piggyback off of their networks, right? So and so it's it's it looks more like um, you know sending messages to to them to their followers, getting them to amplify that uh, using memes and targeting those memes to large nodes in a network, um, and to to see if that that can amplify and spread. And that's again, I don't want to emphasize that it's it's only Russia, but just as it's an example because there's a lot of research done. But it, it's right. just how it's how media operates now, right? It's, no, it's I mean them, I think.
0: Know. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm glad you said that because I always think we fixate on Russia far too much in these conversations where the reality is they can be a lot more, you know, insidious. And, you know, I think they influence in different kinds of ways and we forget how much of this cultural production sort of like is part of this bigger sort of this bigger sort of push for soft power by different entities. Absolutely. So so what do you think we should be paying attention to about TikTok right now? Like, should we be worried about this because, you know, this shakedown by the US government to force them to sell to Microsoft? I mean, I I can't believe this is where we are, but- This
1: is where we are. This is it. This is the thing to pay attention to is, you know, we, we grew up with this idea that the internet was global, spaceless, democratic. And What we're seeing is that it's corporate, uh, political, and uh, and highly contentious, and and that the you know, the borders of the internet um, are we're probably in the future and are already are starting to resemble um, visas and travel. You know, there's there's going to be like um, you know zones of the internet that are are more accessible to to say people in the United States and zones more accessible to people in China, zones more accessible to people in Iran, et cetera and uh, we're probably just going to see more and more of this which is that nation states and corporations are working to to cut up um, our access to the internet and it's it's following geopolitical lines and so the the kind of illusion um, and it's always been an illusion of a democratic internet um, is quickly uh quickly coming apart and so tiktok i think when we pay attention to the both the dynamics and the rhetoric about tiktok and I emphasize rhetoric because we have to always understand rhetoric as a mode of geopolitical influence. Is um, part of the internet changing in this in this uh, in, in this century.
0: And how about the role of creators and artists? Because, you know, something that you and I have talked about a lot, we actually met through Twitter. Um, You were actually in a social media art show I curated back in 2010. You were also participating in that as well. And, you know, and you've been looking at social media a lot, obviously. You've also, you know, been doing it as part of your work and researching it. And you wrote a very popular book, Memes to Movements, about uh, memes, which, of course, is maybe one of the currencies of the the social web. Now, what are their roles? Because I'm of two minds when it comes to artists on social <laughs> platforms. Because, yeah. you know, as much as artists like to think that they're messing things up and really challenging, I wonder whether half the time all they're doing is actually holding up a system that really they benefit from, maybe in terms of publicity. But really, what's the ultimate goal? Because in the case of Instagram, for instance, Instagram, honestly has become in many ways a very detrimental impact on the art community, in my opinion. Even though some people love it in form of communication, it has certainly influenced a certain kind of work. And I do go to art schools and see a certain kind of Instagram influenced work, which frankly is kind of mediocre in my mm-hmm. opinion. So what do you think the role is?
1: Well, I guess there's, it, I guess it's a, it's a, it's a tricky question. It, it's almost like, well, one, uh, artists, as you say, benefit from visibility. And these platforms are optimized for visibility, and so certainly, um, it's especially in this in this time when we're all kind of sheltering in place, the visibility of platforms makes artists a little bit more visible, and that's that's just a frank reality. And it's but it's also a commentary on how hard it is for an artist to to get visibility, to get um, find stable work, to really. I think the role of artists is it's complex, right? Because on the one hand, um, these platforms are a key way that a lot of artists, including myself, have built visibility for their work and have gotten attention for, for interesting stuff. But then at the same time, we, maybe we should be asking why do artists have to turn to platforms and why are our arts institutions uh, not uh, so ill-equipped to bring visibility to artists? Such, and to, such a
0: good question. Yeah,
1: to support their work, right? Why do we have to turn to 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 social media platforms and others? And then on the other hand, you know, I think artists should really be critiquing these systems, these systems, right, these platforms. I've been thinking about the work of Xin Xin and, uh, and Xiaowei Wang, who have done these great exhibitions that have looked at the possibilities of chat platforms, of social media platforms, of what AI could look like. I think artists should really be making visible how these systems work, critiquing them, helping us understand exactly what the nature of this work, of, of these platforms is, are, how they operate, um, what government influence looks like, what social influence looks like, et cetera. So it's, it's a tough question, right? Because um, on the one hand, I'm always rooting for artists to, to really champion themselves and, and bring visibility to their work. But again, it goes back to this question, why, why do they need to turn the platforms and not, not our own institutions um, to help them?
0: Yeah, no, that's a good question. I guess a part of it is I feel like artists become very cheap fodder and they kind of get excited when something sort of happens. And mm-hmm. when I say artists, I don't mean just people who make also curators, critics, all these people, you mm-hmm. know, right, that right. are a part of the system. But, right. you know, they're very excited. They build a name for themselves. But ultimately, they become so vested in a system that mm-hmm. they propagate it. And I feel it myself. I mean, I'm very active on Twitter. Part of me is like, you know, I'm very critical of Twitter, but at the same time, I'm like, it becomes one of my main conduits, right? To talking to certain people. So it becomes like, it's certainly attractive. And, and frankly, I'd like to say that I feel like in some ways, Twitter's done some really positive things in the last little while, Mm -hmm. which hopefully will sort of continue to evolve and improve. But, you know, it does make me wonder, like, this is why journalism is suffering, right? This is why, like, a good a friend of mine uh, the other day was complaining about how everyone with an Instagram account feels like they can make a slideshow and they're a journalist, which is, you know, it's great, except for when somebody is disseminating information that's not really accurate. or is more of an opinion, but is presented as if it's some sort of a fact. And this is where, like, you know, people love to poo-poo Facebook, not realizing that Instagram is the exact same company, Mm -hmm. right? You know, and it's been amazing how they've been able to, like, play with our minds enough so that people don't make that connection, even though we all know it's true.
1: Right. Yeah, and that's part of the thing is, uh, you know, again, like, we've always talked about this kind of the internet democratized information and expression, but it didn't come with democratic structures like accountability, checks and balances, and and so it was really about decentralizing information and media. And then as a result, we didn't, you know, because we were like, oh, yeah, great, we're democratizing. We didn't put in those those kind of checks, right? And so now we have information flowing without the usual editorial checks. So on the one hand, it's been beneficial, right? It's been helped amplify marginalized voices, bring new voices out. I've certainly been a beneficiary of that. But then at the same time, um, we're now seeing like this massive, massive information problems and online attacks, hate, etc. And so at least there's now a conversation about it, but I wish it had been done 20, 30 years ago.
0: Amen, I agree with you. The genie's out of the bottle. So I wanted to end with one thing because this week uh, Dinos Christianopoulos passed away and Dinos was somebody you'd written about in a piece in 2018 for Hyperallergic. And I wanted us to talk a little bit about that because he's the poet who who actually first wrote the line, they tried to bury us, they didn't know we were seeds, which of course has become a very popular protest um, message. So can you tell us a little bit about that story? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I wrote it about two years ago when I was just noticing it's be, it being used in protests um, in the United States and had been following it for a while and I was just kind of curious about where it came from and what were its origins and you know of course as a culture writer I just wanted to know more about it. And so I actually spoke with a Greek uh, media scholar Alexandra Botapulu, to help me understand the Greek side of it and so the original poem translated by um, Nicholas Costas reads as a couplet. What you didn't do to bury me but you forgot that I was a seed. And it's just so so beautiful so powerful and Christianopoulos um, himself came from you know, the Greek literary community, but um, was very much a anti-establishment figure. Um, he was queer, and so he was always, um, you know, talking about challenging the system. And then watching how that phrase traveled. Right? It was it was then used by uh, Zap- the Zapatista movement in Mexico. It was uh, used for the Ayotzinapa 43 in Mexico, and then certainly has been used in the United States, both in the context of Black Lives Matter and in immigrant rights. Um, we're seeing it rise up again in, in response to Brianna Taylor. And it's, a, it's that image of a of a seed of both the burial and then the seed, um, you know, bearing fruit for something else that I feel like has been such a motivating force for activists for years now. And it's, um, it was just really powerful to, to learn more about um, about its, its, its origins.
0: It's, it's also interesting how, you know, people have ascribed it to many different origins. I, yeah. I saw that even it was used by the Zapatista movement in the 90s, and it was circulating as a Mexican proverb, mm-hmm. yeah. Do you know, and yeah. and I've definitely seen it in all types of protests, Absolutely. you know, all around the world that I think because it has such a poignant thing. So what does it tell us, if anything, about the role of art in protest, do you think? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think it's, you know, I mean, in some ways, it's yeah, art can give us those images, um, can give us that inspiration to help us understand and make sense of our suffering. It really is a, uh, when you think about its use um, in in the context of the Yudatsinapa 43 and Black Lives Matter, we are talking about people who have been disappeared and, and killed. And we are talking about very, uh, very dark and very um, disturbing things that have been, that been done to human beings. And art gives us a way to process that. It helps us remember that we are interconnected, uh, that we are—that um, uh, death does not have to happen um, uh, without uh, without purpose. That that um, that activists can continue the work um, of those who have passed before us. And so, so I think art, in some of its most powerful forms, gives us the language and the imagery that helps us helps motivate us during during really trying times. And certainly, we're living in one of those times right now.
0: Absolutely. And so, we remember Dino's Christianopoulos as uh, the writer behind those really inspirational lines. And I think it really is a beautiful thought that, you know, a poet somewhere can inspire people all around the world even when his words are not understood to be by him. So, you know, a little memory, a little, you know, thoughts and prayers and, and, you know, just thinking about the influence of one creative voice on the world. A beautiful absolutely
1: thought. yeah one one beautiful seed that's um, flowered in so many
0: ways yeah absolutely and thank you on for thank coming you. on and thanks, talking Prague. to us about TikTok and yeah. sharing this wonderful inspirational story
1: yeah thanks so much Frog for having me again. Now we get this far, get this far.
0: The music this episode is by Ute and it's titled Run. I'm Hrug Vartanian, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening, and stay safe. Wherever
1: you go, there you are. Funny how much we know right from the start. We run until we fall apart. And we get this far, get this far.